Hello and welcome to the Flow Code podcast, where we're dedicated to spreading the ideals of open source development, community collaboration, and engineering innovation. I'm your host, James O'Reilly, a civil structural engineer based in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Our mission is to empower engineers across the globe through a multi-dimensional approach to learning. We dive deep into technical topics, especially Python's potential in civil and structural engineering, alongside broader engineering-focused subjects like soft skills, economics, science, modern technologies, and industry trends. I'm extremely passionate about Python's application in our field, but I want to emphasize that Flowcode's overarching goal is about fostering growth and continuous improvement. So we talk about a lot more than Python on this podcast. Check out the Flowcode newsletter on Substack for more. The links are all in the description. And with that said, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the Flowcode podcast. Today, my guest is a very good personal friend of mine, Mr. Scott Reese. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. You got it. So to kick things off, we'll provide some context here to the listeners. Scott is a civil engineer that works with me in Nightpiece Old Canada, and he does a broad variety of engineering things on mining and hydropower projects. And what else do you do, Scott? Whole Water management design for hydropower and mining primarily. That covers it. Project management, project controls, coordination for, for larger multidisciplinary teams. <laughs> okay. So that being said, the big question, your philosophy in a nutshell. First, we'll do your overall broader life philosophy in a nutshell, and then we'll talk about engineering. Okay. And well, keep it brief. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not much of a philosopher, but if I have a life philosophy, I suppose it needs to be to build and maintain strong relationships. That's with family, friends, colleagues. I think you hear it all the time, but it's true. It's who you know yeah. uh, in life that really shapes everything. And, you know, I think ultimately becomes more important as you progress in your career too than even your um, nitty gritty technical skills at times. It's, it's really the, <clears throat> excuse me, the people that you um, build a network with. Yeah. Yep. And then I guess a very important distinction about your career as an engineer is that over the last, what has it been like 10 years, you've the process of losing your vision a little bit longer, but the most extensive loss would have occurred over the last decade or so. But I, I, I was born with a recessive genetic condition called retinitis pigmentosa. So it leads to a gradual loss of your visual field from the outside in. So you start to develop kind of more of a tunnel vision with time. You lose your ability to see at night and peripheral sight goes and you start to lose more and more functional sight, color, things like that go towards the end and, and you just kind of get to a pinhole and lose lose your vision. So I went through that process, I guess, from childhood. Um, in my teens, I was still seeing fairly well, you know, driving like a teenager, um, doing all my sports that I that I could. But even, even in those years, I was starting to find certain things were becoming problematic, like baseball was one of the first sports for me to go. Trying to track a white ball <laughs> on the white sky yeah. became challenging. Golf was never a good option for a guy like me. So I kind of migrated towards more activities that were almost solo sports, like adventure sports. I got into whitewater kayaking which would probably be my favorite sport of all time. I did a lot of that, uh, mountain biking, downhill skiing, water skiing. Uh, things like that I found for at least for a number of years, they offered me a bit more success than, than ball sports because I could play the game and, and see to a reasonable degree what I needed to be seeing. Uh, yeah. eventually, that <clears throat> eventually that kind of dried up on me also though because 
it becomes progressively more dangerous as you lose your vision to be doing things at high speed. When you were telling me recently about skiing, like I just thought that was absolutely insane to be out skiing with completely blind. It just sounds like you're an, uh, yeah, a liability a complete to everyone, liability. myself and yeah. everyone on the mountain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, ultimately it's up to my, my good guide to make sure that he keeps me away from trees, moving obstacles, i.e. other skiers and snowboarders. And, uh, you know, ultimately I'm not looking for gladed uh, runs, <laughs> but I, I, I love skiing when it's wide open and I can let loose. It, it becomes a little bit frustrating when i get down onto the busier feeder runs and you're fighting the crowds to get into the lift lineups and things like that so i have a certain type of skiing that i I can have a great day if it's powder and it's you know sun peaks is where i do a lot of skiing and it's never nearly as busy as the coastal mountains or whistler blackcomb so i can have some great days up there Um, it's it's fascinating though just thinking about the the different sports and how much vision plays into it plays into it that's why i was so excited to get you on the the jujitsu mats to right. like to try yeah. it out because it's so focused on your feel and you can feel almost everything yeah and i just thought it was the perfect fit for you absolutely and for context my brother and i used to do um, jiu-jitsu growing up homemade jiu-jitsu no actually i i did it in a in a club okay uh, but uh tim went on to do it competitively and he also lost his vision and he's got a similar but different eye condition to my own and he he went on to compete for canada in the paralympics in 2012 in judo uh in blind judo so i knew that judo was a good activity for a guy like me just knowing that my brother does it and it's it's a lot of fun just getting into a good grapple yeah um as long as there's no striking because i'm at a distinct disadvantage on sparring yeah fair enough (laughs) um so how when did when did you stop being able to read like probably about four or five years ago is when i stopped being able to read text off my screen and for about five years prior to that, I was reading uh, in a progressively less and less fluent way. And, you know, yeah. as I needed to increase the font size, invert my screen, uh, so I was reading white text off a black background, larger text. Um, Those high contrast settings. High that contrast kind of settings, all these things. And so there was a period of time where it was kind of like a, di- a denial period where I didn't really want to accept the fact that I was losing my sight, but it was obvious. And um, I was trying to operate in my career as a engineer um, competing or, you know, living in a world of engineering with other sighted engineers and not really wanting to give that up. So it took a lot for me to finally pull the plug and get with the program and figure out, okay, how am I going to start working differently with yeah. narration software and things that would ultimately change my workflow and for the better. In hindsight, I wish I'd made the move sooner, but at the time I didn't see that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Mm. Um, but I'd, I'd say I became a lot more productive after I made that switch because all of a sudden I could listen to things much more quickly than I could read them as my vision was failing. So it it was this hard period of time where I was trying to rely on my vision, but it wasn't there. And it was before I was turning to my ears for my primary support. I, for me, like I'm constantly, you know, we spend a lot of time together. We work on various projects together and I am constantly amazed at your ability to process information without like visual inputs so you know i have the luxury of being able to look at drawings plots graphs just so much stuff that's like information provided through visual medium you don't have any of that you're doing everything through the narration software you've got like this computerized voice which is reading out 
everything that's on your screen. So when you think about the influx of engineering information that comes through um, somebody's brain on a daily basis, like all most of mine comes through my eyeballs yeah. and yours goes through your ears. And I just don't, I just, I'm constantly amazed at your ability to cut through the noise and it comes out when you're writing, I think, because you've got, you're a very good writer and it's always clear, no bullshit. And I wonder if that, if your listening skills over the last few years have kind of helped in that, in sort of that essentialism in your writing, do you think? I'm not sure. First, thanks. Those are nice compliments of my skills. But uh, I have read things about 90 or 95% of brain activity is stimulated by visual cues. And so that leaves me thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm left yeah. with 5 or 10%. But ultimately, I, I think as you as you become unable to rely on the vision, you increase other the use of other senses to try to make up for that. And you come up short in many areas. Like, I'm not going to lie, certain types of data processing and uh, visualization of information, there's no substitute for graphics. You know, like you, you would have to go line by line through a huge data set to um, find points of concern, uh, but you might see it instantly with a plot. Mm. So there are types of work that I've moved away from just because they don't make sense for me anymore. I've had to kind of adapt my, my um, the type of work that I'm doing to suit the skills that I actually have and the, the, the things that I can actually offer to the company um, being being blind and, yeah and so yes technical writing is something that i've been able to lean on because i can do it regardless of my site and there are other other examples certain types of analysis that aren't uh, as heavy on on visualization but there's there's no beating around the bush that certain things are, are harder and, and a lot of software interfaces are also not very accessible to somebody that can't see that's getting better with time and Microsoft Apple like some of these big software developers are coming out with really good accessible apps that help me and it's certainly a lot better than it was a decade ago mm. um, but there's still a long ways to go with various different applications that you probably use on a daily basis that actually we've talked about various ones that I'd love to be able to use if, if it was um, if it was set up in a, in a way that I could access mm. um, but sometimes they aren't and sometimes they can be like yesterday <laughs> yesterday you helped me set up uh, open AI interface through the API directly through my my Python um, console so you know I've gotten my open AI, back up and running the way that I had it kind of earlier before it went to the, the the desktop user interface that made it inaccessible to me. So yeah, there are some workarounds, but there are definitely some challenges with different software. Yeah. So uh, for anybody out there that uses ChatGPT, probably everybody these days, but um, previously I had gotten Scott set up with uh, the OpenAI playground where he could kind of go in and put in queries and get responses to queries and he could manipulate it and, and add it to his, his notepad for various reasons. And then uh, yesterday we were experimenting with trying to build a sort of simplified tool that he could access directly from the command line because Scott uses Python quite a bit for a variety of different types of uh, water modeling and energy modeling and financial modeling purposes. And now that he's able to access um, OpenAI directly from his command line, it's just simplified it now. And I think the, the floodgates are going to open for you in terms of what you can do. I know. I feel like the world is my oyster here. and I've got this <laughs> yeah. huge opportunity to start going deep on on this AI uh search engine 
uh, going forward again. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, and it's super helpful for for and for people out there. Um, like Scott is using Python purely, like the majority of the the way that he uses it is he's writing the scripts in a text file, like in a Notepad. And then he's bringing them directly into the command line and running them that way. And when he when you get errors, he has to like listen to those errors, right? Line by line. Yeah, kind of like that. I, I mean, I've actually got my Python console set up through the PowerShell in Microsoft. So it, but yes, it, it's it's uh, it's the equivalent to using something like like IPython or whatever. Um, I'm not sure which which um, software you're using are you using um i use vs code um, right which is kind of like a a pretty robust yeah ide that has a lot of extra functionality i tried to use vs code for a while but i found some of the extra bells and whistles that are probably really helpful for you were just a hindrance with yeah the, uh, it's too much screen reader going on because it would try and autofill things and uh, my reader was going crazy all the time so i i just couldn't function with it so i just use a clean notepad and run the scripts in the in the PowerShell. That makes way more sense for you. It's just cleaner. It's a, like a, a more simple, refined approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next thing, well, I guess since we're talking about sports, let's talk about the swim. So <laughs> Scott did an absolutely ridiculous swim last summer. What were the, give, what, give us the... What, well, what's the story? De- deal, deal the story with the, the swim. Sure. So about three years ago, I I got my first guide dog through an organization called Canadian Guide Caleb. Dogs for the Blind. Yeah, Caleb's my guide dog. He uh, hangs out in the office all day, every day. Everybody here knows him. He's probably the most popular guy in the office, I Best think. Best looking. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> that too. Yeah. Um, so I guess in gratitude for the increased mobility that I gained through getting a guide dog, I decided I'd like to try to do a fundraiser. And I'd never done any fundraising, any significant fundraising in my life, and I figured it was about time to try to give back to something. And in this case, it was a cause that was important to me. Um, so I did, I did what people do when they do fundraisers. They pair up an obscure feat of strength with <laughs> with uh, some sort of, um, you know, charity or whatever their campaign is. In my case, I have a swimming background. I grew up a competitive swimmer and got back into open water swimming a bit when I had to drop away from some of my other preferred sports. And, and so swimming was kind of the natural um, sport choice for me. And, and so I decided to pair a marathon swim with my guide dog fundraiser and I swam across the Strait of Georgia between um, the coast of BC and Vancouver Island. What's so, the linear distance? Uh, straight line about 30 kilometers from Davis Bay uh, on the Sunshine Coast over to Nanaimo. A um, little bit of veering and, and such when you're swimming uh, with a headset uh, and even even if you had perfect sight you're not going to swim a direct straight line with currents and tides and everything that's going on out there so i think it was a little over 31 kilometers actually swam so i don't know how many people out there are familiar with swim like swimming those kinds of distances probably nobody but even even swimming like 200 meters is no joke in open water <laughs> well and you get used to it but yeah yeah, and also the water uh, in the Pacific is absolutely freezing up here. Yeah, but I cheated because I had a wetsuit on. Uh, you know, the uh, official English Channel swim rules is is if you want to get your name on the list of people that have done it, you've got to swim it with no wetsuit. But really? I, I wore the wetsuit because I, I did a couple of training swims without, and I realized that I wouldn't last more than two or three hours without getting way too cold to finish the swim. And I needed to be out there for, turned out to be just under 11 hours. 11 hours of swimming. Yeah, yeah. so long swim. So you started training in, was it January? Yeah, 
I came out of the gates pretty hard. New Year's, uh, almost like a New Year's resolution. I think I cooked it up kind of like in December that I'd like You're, to do. And what was this? Was you, you were this was for you were also approaching forty. So some <laughs> some might say yeah, yeah. a midlife Mid, crisis. Midlife crisis. There was various things going on in, behind that decision to <laughs> do that swim. Yeah, yeah, but. It, it happened to be the year that I turned 40. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so, and then you, so you basically kind of structured out a training plan and then slowly ramped it up, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I did get some advice from, uh, I, I reached out and I met a couple of people uh, that had done that exact swim. And those same people that had done that swim had also done the English Channel and very similar uh marathon swims in other parts of the world so they had some great advice to, like what uh, just about hours like you know number of kilometers of swimming per week to kind of ramp up um make sure you practice swimming and eating because you know you might get nauseous if you're out there and you've never had to take a, a feeding break um when you're swimming and then you know you eat a banana and you keep swimming and you're going to start throwing up so it was it was a series of things to work on, um, troubleshooting issues like chafing on your neck because, you know, the salt water and the, and the wet. I suit. remember that time you, you came in and your neck was all messed up from Yeah, because chafing. I f- forgot to put my Vaseline on my neck that yeah. swim. And I, that was only about an hour in the water and it, you know, takes all the skin off your neck basically. So yeah. after 11 hours, if you, if you didn't do it right, I think you'd be tapping out, uh, just out of bleeding from your neck you know, <laughs> wouldn't have anything left so yeah. there there were a few things to figure out training eating um, just general number of hours of exercise a week to try and get the cardio fitness up to what i would need to do to sustain that kind of time i think it's a bit like training for the iron man because similar amount of time spent doing exercise so you were like how many hours a week were you at the peak of your training say like a month out how many hours a week were you in the pool um well let's say all in between pool and spin and running because i was doing some cross training just trying to get zone two you know heart rate training yeah um probably all in 15 15 hours and now I, i know a lot of people train more than that when they're training for ironman and stuff but I was trying to work full time and have a, have a wife and two kids at the That's same right. time. So there was a lot going on. There were a lot of very early starts and tired days. Yeah, you were getting up at like four and five a.m. right to train. Sometimes, yeah, because the only free time to get you know an hour or two on the spin bike was before the kids would get up. So those were some of my my best opportunities were the early the early morning hours before and then they were mobilized. So you, so, and then you don't, you had also done, um, a couple of practice open water swims too. What were the, the distances that you did then? Was it eight, nine K or? So my training swims, I, so mostly for the first kind of, uh, for the winter period last year, I did all pool swimming. And then in, uh, late March, I started getting out for weekend swims in the ocean and I'd still did most of my training in the pool. Um, and then towards the end, I, I ramped up the ocean swimming, ramped down the pool swimming a bit and got into some bigger swims. So most of my training through the first part of the year was one to two hour training swims towards the end, like in, in June and early July, I was getting out for some big swims. Um, one was a, you know, three hour, 11, 11 K swim. I think it was, and then I had a four hour, 13 K swim and I had a five hour, 16 K swim kind of those were the three weekends leading up to the the big swim so my longest swim was about 16 kilometers but almost you know half distance and just less than half the time spent for mm. the actual crossing um that's as that's as far as i could build it up because i just couldn't find more than five hours to do anything i know yeah it's such yeah. a it it was i remember observing and it just took up so much of your time um yeah so then on the day, you had your earpiece installed and you had your wetsuit and then you had a support boat and what else? Yeah, so I had a couple support boats, some great friends that uh, 
did all the logistics behind the scenes, planning for the crossing, talking to the port authorities and the Coast Guard and every everybody that needed to be advised. Um, my brother-in-law and father-in-law took the second boat out to provide backup if anything happened on the first boat with mechanical issues or anything that could compromise the swim. Mm. And then um, a team of supporters, friends, family, and uh, strangers that, that kind of helped me uh, come into the beach, you know, land, the, the landing party. And, and a few a few people even at the takeoff at 6 a.m. on the Sunshine Coast. So there was a lot of people involved. Uh, on the fundraising side, it was one of those things I, I never could have imagined the the success or like the kind of energy that it that it built because everybody kind of reshared it on social media. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of really big helpers that went way above and beyond and I guess had actually reached out to news outlets and um, talked to important people that, you know, when they repost it, lots of people see it. Mm-hmm. And and so the fundraiser kind of went way beyond expectation. What was the know? final tally of the just, fund? Just under 165000 Wow. And I had set out thinking I'd raise about ten. So for the was, for the Canadian Guide Dog Association. Yeah. Yeah. So and this was all, you know, third party fundraisers, so uh, they supported it fully and we're very grateful uh, for the for it, but it I would was love all kind to of organized meet, outside. I would love to meet anybody out there that objected against this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think it's got to it be somewhere out positive. there. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was good. I, I I actually even with that said though, it's funny because you do still get some trolls that will post on things online when they see an article and make comments that are just you know ridiculous inevitable inevitable yeah Yeah. um okay well yeah i remember i remember you training through that and uh what an achievement it was just such a, a phenomenal achievement and to do all that so during the actual 11 hours of swimming did was there any like mental battles that you had in there like i'm sure you had a lot of conversations with yourself like what are you doing why are you doing this <laughs> well i had the benefit of having the headset in uh, or sorry it's a bone conduction you're like um it sits kind of just in front of the piece sits just in front of your your ear and it yeah. uses bone conduction technology so i had the benefit of having feedback from the boat not okay. just left and right but occasionally my buddy yost who was on the mic most of the time would read me uh post or something that someone had made on social media that was uplifting and kept yeah. me feeling like okay this is meaningful this is this is good because yeah you you get into a state of being in a fair bit of pain out there and ab- about halfway through my shoulders were almost cooked yeah and i was you know i think at one of my one of my drinking eating stops mid swim um i was you know taking ibuprofen and just knowing that i still had to do the same distance I just covered again and doing it now, not fresh. Yeah. Um, so there, there were some hard, mentally it was challenging for sure. How do you feel about, about it now? It's, what is it? Like are we six months, seven months since you've swam? Yeah. Like, have you got any interest in doing such a ridiculously <laughs> punishing event? No, no, pro- well, not for a while. I'd, I'd love to do something. It was a very exciting and interesting experience in life to, do something totally outside of my ordinary. It gained a lot of momentum and it was, it was super fun. Yeah. But it was also a huge commitment. And my wife, Alex, you know, was taking care of the kids all the time I was swimming and, uh, they're one and three now. So like when I started training, my daughter was two months old. Yeah. Um, busy time in life. And, and I think for the next couple of years anyways, I'm going to focus on the, on the family and um, the you know career and figure out if there's something else in the future for uh, you know a feat like that, but not not imminently. Good, yeah, good. <laughs> um, okay, so aspects of engineering you find most fulfilling? Well, I think that would just be working on projects that actually become something. You know, working on a project that gets constructed and goes into service. Or maybe a recent example is a project that we both worked on is Klamath 
uh, river renewal. Uh, it's it's pretty neat now to see that they've successfully opened up those dams and they're draining those reservoirs. And everything that we did for a few years has come to something. Yeah, so so Scott's talking about the uh, Klamath River Renewal Project, which is the largest dam demolition project in uh, U.S. history. We did the detailed design for the removal of four uh, dam facilities on the Klamath River in um, Oregon and California. And we're, what stage are we at now? We're kind of... Drawdown. Yeah. I mean, they've removed a lot of the water from the reservoirs, and next phase is uh, taking the physical structures out once once there's no head left behind the dams. Yeah. So it's a, a fascinating project that was kind of originally intended to restore fish passage um, along the Klamath River. And I think we're probably going to start to see more similar types of dam removal or upgrade or decommissioning projects which kind of follow in a similar vein what do you think definitely because there there are a lot of aging assets out there that were built in the you know 19 anywhere from the 1920s to the 50s or 60s that have reached their design life and now with you know modern code and standards that have to be met to renew licenses they'll either have to put huge amounts of money into refurbishing the project to make it current or they'll have to do something to demolish or you know make it make it safe yeah and so that is one side and then there's also like increasing pressure or movement on the environmental side for you know things like fish passage and just River, natural rivers and and such so there's a lot of opposition to dams and those you know, large structures that have changed those ecosystems and and so um i think we will see more of them like you said i think also to the future of water conveyance itself is a very interesting topic because you know there's areas particularly in uh, the southern U.S. states where they're in state of drought. And, you know, we have weather events that seem to be becoming more and more volatile, both at in cold extremes and heat extremes. And I feel like looking 50, 100 years ahead that we're going to be conveying water as a commodity around the planet fresh water and i think a lot of the pipelines that are currently in existence for oil or gas etc i think those things could be repurposed for for water but i mean i'm probably talking a bit out of school here but i think i think that's what i think you know <laughs> yeah long term water supply generally speaking will be one of the main issues for a lot of projects right anywhere that doesn't have it or even just for communities and cities as as water demands increase with population growth um like you said climate change or just arid climates things Mm. like that there's huge potential mining districts in parts of the world that are water deficient and so just getting water to those places to to enable development there's a lot of work in the next hundred years for engineers in the field of water resources Mm. yeah um Pivotal experiences shaping your career. Can you think of any kind of standout um, experiences? That could be like specific projects that you worked on or maybe like advice that you received from people. Sure. I mean, KP's got lots of great engineers and we work on very neat projects. Like someone once kind of referred to it as like your, your projects that you're talking about are kind of like Discovery Channel kind of projects which is true so that's that's pretty neat to to be involved with that um in terms of like pivotal events in my career probably one of the most interesting things that i did was uh, agreeing to relocate to johannesburg for two years Mm. early in my career so i stayed with kp but i went to our african practice and worked 
on Southern African and East African projects. And, and so that was a real eye opener for me early in my career coming out of, you know, Canada and being young and excited about everything and then moving to a different part of the world and seeing different cultures, seeing different practices, you know, um, third world countries, things that I hadn't really been exposed to at all in my upbringing. Um, it was, it was a very good, like personal growth, um, decision to, to, to take that trip to Africa. And it stuck with my career afterwards because I maintained involvement on a bunch of our, uh, African work since then. So that, that was probably the biggest thing that shaped my career here at KP other than what we've already talked about being my vision loss and my kind of necessary shift into different types of work mm -hmm. that we've already covered. Is there anything yeah. that stood out to you about the engineering culture or methods of practice in South Africa compared to here? Um, I mean, things are different down there socially, but they have very good, they have very good engineering and very good engineering training mm -hmm. in, in South Africa. Now I can't say that about the entire continent because I don't have that experience, but in South Africa, the education system has historically been very good and there were engineers down there that were very good resources, good people to learn from, mm -hmm. um, just like we have here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And and we still uh, are supported by our South African office on lots of things that we do here just because they are very good at what they do and, um, you know, able to support us and work to the same level of quality that we need. Um, work is different down there, like I said, just because I think socioeconomic status of people is entirely different than what you would find in Canada, but that that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother subject that, I don't know enough about to comment. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's interesting just kind of like the different types of problems that you mm -hmm. have depending on the location of the project. And you yeah. might have a solution that is uh, a tech-driven solution in a first-world project location, but in a remote um, project location so elsewhere, it might be better solved with, you know, manual labor or community participation that's absolutely yeah and that's that's definitely a thing like labor is much cheaper yeah. so you'll find certain types of products or or construction practices will definitely fly there that would just be too expensive here or... yes yeah, it's, it's <clears throat> yeah it's interesting um so okay your approach to problem solving well i think it's I'm, I'm very systematic, like most of us engineers. And I think here at KP, we, we kind of do this all the time, whether we think about it or not, but it's really, I guess it's just defining the problem, um, making sure you understand it, like starting at the high level, look at the bigger picture and make sure that you're not just off in the weeds doing something without knowing why, because you might just be doing the wrong thing. Mm. Uh, or you might be asked to do something and, if you just understood the problem, you could find a better way to do it. Um, you know, once you've defined the problem, it, it's the background information gathering that you need to do is developing kind of the design basis and criteria that that guide what you're going to do. Um, codes and standards, regulations, things that you need to consider. Um, and, and then it's walking through the process of you know, brainstorming, coming up with ideas, looking at every different reasonable possibility for technology or location or whatever it is that you're trading off um, to try and come up with the best solution, honing in on the best uh, choice and and then working to execute on that. And that's that's the process we use here all the time. And I think that kind of... Do, uh, do you find yourself struggling with focus? Um I know I do. There's just I'm spinning, yeah. I'm spinning many different plates, and sometimes you're focused on one plate a little bit too much at the expense of others. Yeah, I absolutely. I think it's an ongoing thing in life to try and continue to get better at time management yeah. and 
and especially now with like endless notifications and yeah how accessible we all are mm-hmm. like if you could lock yourself into some space where nobody could contact you you would probably it would be so much easier to get like three hours of deep work done definitely and you read lots about this if you look into anything on habits or productivity or time management and it really should be like that you need to cut out the noise yeah i'm not good at it i have outlook you know going and i should i should probably be turning it off and setting blocks of time start and end a day to monitor emails and then the rest of the day is focused work i think we could all benefit from using a little more structure to our use of um outlook and and notifications for other other things other services i have the benefit that i'm not busy looking at a bunch of stuff on on a smartphone because i'm blind Mm. but there's still distractions even even though i can't you know try to go and look at facebook or instagram sure (laughs) sure yeah yeah um any book recommendations i've read lots of very good books but the one that kind of stands out when i try to think back on books that left a mark and i think i ended up reading it twice because i thought it was so good it was um endurance it's the story of ernst shackleton and his the mountaineering guy or the exploration exploration guy? guy trying to do the first transantarctic um trip back in 1914 they they got started but they got frozen in the ice in the Weddell sea and the, the ship got surrounded and enclosed in the ice and they got completely trapped and so it goes from being a exploration mission to a survival mission and they spend two years trying to survive and it's an incredible story of leadership and um, resilience and, and just like sur- What's that? What's survival. it called? It's called Endurance. Endurance. Yeah. And it's the story of Shackleton's mission. It's written from various uh, journal entries that the guys were keeping in their diaries and things and kind of compiles them and turns it into a pretty cool story. Oh, my um, God. I so can't imagine. <clears throat> it makes you think how much softer we've become a hundred years later like these guys survived in the arctic in the you know near the south pole with deer skins and nothing else basically for two years living off penguins and seals whenever they could find them um just you know now we've got our modern nice arcteryx jackets and everything everything's perfect you've got your completely waterproof ski gear and even still I don't think I'd survive in those conditions down there with my minus 70 rated ski jacket or something. I was uh, recently up in Prince George, which is central BC with my wife's family. And I brought out the, uh, I brought out the garbage from uh, their garage to the roadway, which is maybe like about 30 meters in, uh, it was minus 36 and it took <laughs> me, cold. it took me less than 40 seconds <laughs> and I talked about yeah. it for like a week about yeah. how hard it was. Yeah. Now living that for two years <laughs> yeah. in a, in a wet deerskin uh, jacket, see how you feel. Yeah. I, I do often think about the, uh, the first settlers yeah. over here yeah, it's in, amazing. in, in BC, the, the terrain is ridiculously obnoxious yeah. and for them to come and live through the winters here and settle in a place like Prince George or where you're from, Williams Lake. Yeah. Man, it's cold and Absolutely. full of grizzlies. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not easy living. And rivers to cross. Yeah. Mountains to cross. Like, yeah. Exploring, it didn't, didn't seem like an easy job. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe you could just share some of your thoughts on the benefits of learning Python and why you think it's a useful tool for engineers. Well, I like Python a lot because, um, I find it a lot easier to use visually impaired than, um, things like Excel. Like Excel is a great tool. Is that why you started using it? Well, that's actually not why I started using it, but that I think I, moved more towards it as time went on because yeah. at, at the time that I started, I was actually 
using it kind of just out of interest, like a bit of a, a geek project. But I started working on a series of math problems that's called Project Euler. And it's progressively harder problems that you likely be able to solve using uh, Excel or other, you know, without using software, uh, like a programming language. And so I started working through these problems and learning the basics of Python, like, you know, just running for loops and just, you know, uh, trying to iterate to a solution or, or trying to find a solution efficiently, you know, run, find a write a code that would solve a problem in two minutes instead of like three days. And are, right? are we talking about um, stuff like math problems that are kind of like, uh, like calculus problems or like probability no, based stuff, like logic based stuff? Could be probability or logic based stuff it, it, it was all over the place okay yeah. some of the problems were just you know um what's the what's the sum of the first you know ten thousand entries in the fibonacci sequence or, or something like mm. that just things that you know, just little puzzles to work around yeah. right and sometimes it would involve large numbers that excel wouldn't be able to handle mm. and, and things like that so uh, it was an interesting kind of little little thing to play around with, and it got me kind of more interested in Python for a broader application. So I started using it to replace certain things I, I had been doing in Excel mm -hmm. that ultimately ended up being really easy and fast to do with Python. And then, you know, the vision loss getting worse over time, it kind of drove me more, more and more that way just because looking through a workbook wasn't really a reality anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> Very hard to, it's, it was one thing to create my own workbook, but if, if it's somebody else is trying to review the formula logic of all the different cells that are involved, it, it's very, very challenging to do without sight. So I, that's why I kind of like moved more and more towards it, but I have just over the years through various personal projects and things learned the power of it and mm. for engineering um, for any field really uh, app development like whatever you happen to want to be doing I, th I feel like you can do it in python yeah I, you know it goes without saying but i just i think it's a massively untapped resource for for all engineers out there i think that they just the basic understanding of python can instantly expand their technical capabilities and you're able to solve problems that were previously much more difficult to solve and it's yeah. so good at interfacing between commercial softwares databases like there's just so much stuff that you can do what about um you know what would you how would you describe it to your like because i was at the the University of British Columbia industry night last week and I spoke to a few engineering students and I asked them do you guys cover any programming and they said yeah we have a sort of a, a rudimentary programming class where they cover I think C++ maybe MATLAB and it's really just um, a, a pretty old intro yeah. to programming and not very exciting and they were just kind of like it really sucked and yeah i that means i have essentially they essentially had no interest in programming and then it was my experience was the same thing like i i was interested in the sexier finite element simulation modeling packages where you see you know like a big cable state bridge with a cool yeah. stress distributions in the cables and temperature right. modeling and stuff that looked cool in like a, a screenshot or something like that and i had no understanding of that you could do all of that in yeah python anyway yeah exactly i just <laughs> didn't know it looked yeah. when you when you compare them side by side yeah python with like you know just a bunch of text in a command line interface it just looked shit yeah and i had the same experience when i i went to ubc engineering starting in 2001 uh, and so that computer science i think it was compsci 151 was my was my c plus plus course and it was a first year generic uh programming class and I, I didn't have to do anything else through the entire rest of my degree 
But that experience was enough to put me off programming for a good 15 years before I got into exactly. Python. I just, I just, it didn't click. It, it was not presented well. I couldn't connect the dots and see the usefulness of it unless I was, you, you know, uh, building a computer kind of thing. And, and so I just think maybe the way it had been presented at the time, it also was likely because I was not open-minded to computer science. I, you know, since then have come around and have learned that Python is this amazing language. There's other options. And if you're hardcore, even C++ would be amazing. I think it's just harder to learn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, the C++ introductory course that I took at UBC 23 years ago now uh, was not enough to get me interested. I think and, it's the same issue like everywhere there are some schools that do teach some Python, but engineering, civil and structural engineering themselves are massively broad topics. And you do four or five years in university. And by the time you get out, you've still only scratched, barely scratched the surface. Yeah. And no matter how hard you worked. And when you get out into the professional industry, you're, you're at the bottom of this massive mountain. Yeah. Even with a master's, you know. So Agreed. Yeah. I feel like um, there's not enough time in university to learn Python no. and people are busy once they start working and they can't find the time to learn Python. But I just think it is, it's such a, a lever to magnify their engineering skills. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think Excel's not going anywhere. It's, it's very useful. It's extremely useful and versatile for a lot of things that people need to do. Um, but for the heavier lifting and like, for, you know, getting into creative stuff, um, if you know a little bit about Python, it, there's just so much, so much you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. But Okay. It's time for us to conclude this episode. Uh, I want to extend a big thank you to Scott. And hopefully I'll get him on here again to discuss all sorts of other topics because he has a lot more to offer on a whole variety of engineering related stuff. So Scott, thanks again. And hopefully we do this soon. Sounds good. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to the Flow Code podcast. For deeper dives, please visit flowcode.dev and make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter to stay in the loop on new content. And don't worry, we don't do spam. You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas, get in touch. I'm James O'Reilly, keep innovating, and I'll see you in the next episode.